You're listening to the Halcyon podcast with Adam and Rob. And you have to say, that's magnificent. Hello and welcome to the Halcyon podcast with this new series acting as an accompaniment to our new World Cup anthology, Against All Odds, The Greatest World Cup Upsets featuring a truly magnificent lineup of writers, one of which we have with us today. So without further ado, here's Tim Vickery to talk about his chapter on an upset so big that the footballing Goliaths involved changed the colour of their kit as a result. We're talking about the 1950 World Cup final when Uruguay beat Brazil 2-1. So Tim, how are you? I'm very well. I'm looking forward to meeting this magnificent writer. Who's who's that? <laughs> well, we've it's allegedly got, got 13 of them, but yeah, <laughs> I'm one of them, so maybe not not quite. Um, and where exactly are you joining us from for the benefit of our listeners? From Rio in Brazil. Fantastic. Very, very close, actually, to the hotel where Uruguay, the Uruguayan players were based wow. before they, uh, they won the 1950 World Cup. Wow. And there's no white allowed, I imagine. <laughs> uh, the ho- it's a victim of of the pandemic, unfortunately. The uh, the, the hotel, but uh, I used to go there and say, "Look, you know that Uruguay stayed here, and they didn't really, and they didn't make a big thing." I don't think that they should, you know, because I think that that that's history, absolutely, um, and that that's something to be treasured because it's it's a game to be treasured, yeah. and I, I loved having the opportunity to to write about it. I thought it was. Uh, uh, I, I had great fun. It, it is, I think, probably the longest thing I've ever written. Really? You know, yeah, because most of my stuff, it's around a thousand words. Mm. I've gone up to two and four, I think, sometimes. And the the, the brief that, that you gave me for this one was six. Um, but if you need longer, take longer. Yeah. And I love that, you know, because just relax and take your time and tell the story and let the story flow yeah. and see where, where, where it takes you. Uh, and it was, uh, it was a great invitation to have because I was fortunate enough to know a couple of the players and, and the coach from mm. Brazil. Mm-hmm. They're no longer with us, obviously, you know, yeah. so, but to, to, to have, to have had the opportunity to talk to them about it and to have that transcripted, that's a source that no one else has. I think, you know, I've Absolutely. got that source. Yeah, uh, and uh, a few years ago, I did a TV show with a Uruguayan journalist who wrote a fabulous book about it. So I had really in-depth stuff from the Uruguayan side yeah. as well. And there's a book out there, History of South American Football, written by a Uruguayan who doesn't seem to know who the coach was. You know, yeah. so there there are details in this that have been overlooked. Yeah, and it's it was such a great story to tell. I, I love telling it, and I loved having the space to be able not to worry about a word count, just to just to let it flow. Yeah, well, that's what we wanted to achieve. And um, you've just struck upon something that we also wanted to achieve with the book, which was obviously telling both sides. But I think with this one in particular, it's overwhelmingly the Brazilian side that we hear about. The yeah. Uruguayan side, certainly from a European and English perspective, I couldn't, t- you know, you asked someone who's knowledgeable on football to name you one member of that Uruguayan side. And I bet they struggle. And I think it's testament to to your writing and your chapter in particular that you really do examine both sides because there's a hell of a story to tell, obviously on the Brazilian side, but on the Uruguayan side as well. 
Yeah, I, I think a lot of people would also struggle to name people on, on the Brazil side, yeah. uh, which is a shame because yeah. this is a generation that really put Brazil on the map. I mean, the, if you read some of the stuff from the European press who are over watching Brazil, it's amazing. You know, yeah. and, and, and it, 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 it wounds me deeply that these people are, are, are remembered as failures. And it, it wounded them yeah. even more deeply that they were um, remembered as, as, as failures. Uh, there is a tendency in the modern world to see anything that happened pre-Messi and Cristiano Ronaldo as, as, as irrelevant. Yeah. But, you know, if, if Uruguay are going to the World Cup now, it's a country with little more than 3 million population. Yeah. If they're going to the World Cup now, it's because they are dwarfs standing on the shoulders of giants yeah. who did things in the past. Yeah. And that applies to Brazil as well, because there is no success without failure. And Brazil don't become the global nation of football, the one that's won the World Cup more times than anyone else. Mm -hmm. They don't do that without failing. Mm -hmm. And obviously 1950 is the biggest failure. And the failure of 50 combined with the failure of 54 are essential parts of the story to explain why they're the five times world, world champions. So his, history holds the key to so much. Yeah, and do you think, did it seep um, into the Brazilian contemporary consciousness in 2014 with that result against the Germans? Because I remember at the time, I don't remember it so clearly, but I do remember parallels being drawn and the fact that they thought the monkey had been firmly pushed off their back and then it's there again. And it seemed like a real horror in the way that the way that 50 is reported in the way certainly that you've told the story. It did seem a bit like a horror story, a national horror story. And I was just yeah. wondering if 2014 brought it back into the consciousness. Yeah, very much so. And um, I well remember the day of the semi-final leaving the house and saying to me, my wife and my, my stepdaughter, who are World Cup fans, which is very, very common here, you know, yeah. really get behind the, the national team in the World Cup. I remember saying to them that day, not today. Yeah. So I expected Germany to win. Mm -hmm. But no way. I mean, that, that doesn't happen. What happened in that game doesn't happen when Real Madrid play a, a fourth division team in the Spanish Cup. No. Nope. Uh, and I think those two teams could have met a hundred times outside the condition of the World Cup. And Germany would have won the vast majority. Yeah. But they would never, ever, ever conceivably have won by that margin. Why did they win by that margin? Because the whole thing was too much for the, for the Brazil, Brazil side. Yes. And you start to see this during the course of the tournament. Yeah. And I was in the stadium for, I think, the neglected game in that campaign, which is Brazil's second game. It's a nil-nil against Mexico. Mm -hmm. Now, when Brazil met up, in their, their training ground in the hills outside Rio um, to start their preparation for the World Cup, the line was, we have one hand on the trophy. Mm -hmm. that's, how, that's how confident they were. Opening game is a little bit nervy. They win with a dodgy penalty against Croatia, but that's the opening game. Never judge a team on the opening yeah. game, yeah. especially the opening game, yeah. you know, because the pressures there are entirely different. Yeah. But that second game against Mexico, I was in the stadium for it and it was a nil-nil. And the Mexican gatekeeper had a, had a good game. But, you know, there's this buzz going around the press, press box. Is that all they've got? Is that all it is? And it's the moment when the confidence starts to see, mm. we ain't going to do this. We're not going to do this. Yeah. And what makes it so terrifying in, in, in the, the eyes of the players is that they've got these two things. Firstly, they've got this glorious history to live up to. 
mm-hmm. of all of the triumphs. That's where mm-hmm. the bar is set. Mm-hmm. And secondly, well, Brazil blew it at home in 1950. Are we going to do the same? And you put all of that together and you get the, the five goals in five minutes yeah. or, or whatever it was. So uh, that is that game is, is I think, a, a very clear example of the importance of history. The way that, uh, in, in the famous phrase, the past isn't even the past. It certainly seemed like, to me, it was a bit of a student of the history of the game, which I do genuinely, I mean, I found it fascinating since I was a kid. But this must be as close to an audience, you know, our age, who are still alive, basically, to get their eyes on what must have happened or similar in 50, because... The parallels are, are so stark, it's quite incredible. So to see it happen again, obviously in a different way, but then it's the hubris, I think, that that gets... I mean, it happens so many times in this book. There's so many teams that have... They've just thought, we turn up and we've, we've won the game, and it, it's happened throughout the book and obviously throughout football history. Not a chance. You walk in there thinking you've won it, and even the pluckiest of amateur is going to think, hang on a minute, I'm up for this today. Yeah, the gods of football hate that hubris, don't they? Yeah. They, they love lancing a harpoon straight through that um, that, that that hubris. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, oh, what a match. What a match. And I, I'd listened a few times when I was preparing. I listened to the, the full 90 minutes of the radio broadcast. And that was because there, there's very little film of the game available. Yeah. It, it was all filmed. Yeah. Where that film went, nobody knows, you know. So you're, you're reliant on the radio trend, trend, transmission. Mm-hmm. And uh, I love listening to that radio transmission. That that really took me back. And also took me back to my own time as a kid because football wasn't on the TV very much when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. Now, you got the FA Cup final. you got England, Scotland. Yeah. Uh, outside the World Cup, where it was like a feast. Yeah. You didn't get very much. Uh, and uh, so your experience, a lot of it was on the radio, and and football on the radio is is absolutely terrifying. You know, every yeah. attack yeah, the opposition is. Yeah, is, uh, right. is, is is a mortal wound. Yeah. Uh, so I loved that experience. I think it was three times in the course of, of preparing the book. I listened to it, um, uh, and and it really sent me back. Really put me back into the stadium. That that, yeah. that was a bit of time travel that that I really enjoyed doing. Wonderful. But do you think that the hubris was? to be expected a little bit considering they just thrashed Spain 6-1. Do you think that the fact that all the noises from fans to press to politicians even, that were saying they'd won the tournament before the final, which is outrageous, but they genuinely, as any readers who will uh, pick up the book and read your chapter, it was said, it was on the front page of all the papers, wasn't it? We've, yeah. we, we're champions, we've won, we've won the tournament. Well, th- this is the fascinating thing about including this particular game in the overall concept because from the point of view of the seven previous days and the 70 subsequent years it's obviously a massive upset from yeah. any other perspective it's not an upset at all yeah uh, and the the, the the contrast between between the, the, the those two makes i think for fascinating subject matter yeah because i i mean i wasn't an expert on this game by any means and it struck me that you say in the chapter that 72 days prior to this game, Uruguay had beaten Brazil. Without a coach. Without a coach. Yeah. It's remarkable. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And Uruguay are the big cheeses. Yeah. 
Uruguay at that point are a much bigger force than Brazil. And when I mention it in the chapter, but it, it's one of the most important games in the history of, of, of Brazil. Yeah. 32, when they go to Uruguay, Uruguay are the world champions, the new Centenario Stadium, and Brazil send a young side and a black side. There's a lot of young, working-class black kids, and that's yeah. quite new yeah. for Brazil. And two of the, and Brazil win. Now, at that point, that, that is 2-1. It is clearly an upset for Brazil to have won that game against Uruguay in Uruguay. Yeah. But it's the game that kickstarts professionalism in Brazil because the two best players, young, working-class, black players, get signed by Uruguayan clubs who have already turned professional. Yeah. And this, by the, the competitive dynamic of it, makes forces Brazil to turn professional as well. And uh, without professionalism, there's no Pelé. So including that game, because that, that, so that game is a fascinating part of the story. Yeah. No, so in 32, there's absolutely no doubt about it. Brazil are rank outsiders mm. against Uruguay. Yeah, it's amazing. And uh, in, so from the old, from the, from the, the old, then uh, Uruguay Giants, so as late as 1998, Brazil's then president, he's still with us, uh, Fernando Henrique Cardoso, he's asked who should Brazil fear in the World Cup, you know, in the run-up to France 98. Yeah. And he says, oh, we've got to, be, we, we ha- got to be worried about our old foes, Uruguay. Now, they hadn't even qualified. <laughs> so, <laughs> there was no, but still, in the mind of this, of, of, of this fella, he still has, has Uruguay in there. And you, you can't get into that story without talking about politics mm. because which is extremely pertinent at the moment. Yeah. Yes. Because why were Uruguay so good so early? It's because of social democracy. Because Uruguay was the first country in the Western world to have, have a, a kind of welfare state. Mm-hmm. And it meant that when football comes in and is adopted by the elites, no, it's a first world thing. It's a, it's a British thing. And the elites, they try and keep it to themselves with more success in Brazil than elsewhere because Brazil is so semi-feudal. Uruguay, with the social democracy, it goes down the social scale very, very quickly. Mm. And so Uruguay are calling on all of the talent available from Uruguayan society much, much earlier than than Brazil are. Uh, And um, that's pertinent now because we had an election not long ago in Brazil and uh, a a very, very mild version of social democracy won. And still two and a half, nearly three weeks later, you get uh, the fascist hordes gathering outside military barracks, a wailing and a, and a, and a hollering, um, calling on the, the, the armed forces to take control, to save Brazil from what they see as communism, but what yeah. the rest of the world would see as extremely mild social democracy. Yeah. You know, this, this remains the country of the tradesman's entrance. Yeah. And do you, has the yellow shirt now been co-opted completely or do you get defiant people on the left thinking it's our shirt as well? What the hell? There's been some pushback. On, I was working that day of the election. Um, and uh, so I spent almost the entire day outside one of the polling booths and you saw quite a few people on the left and in the centre as well, because it, it was a, it was a, it was a, broad alliance against against the far right but quite a few people with yellow shirts with lula written on them and you see oh, that good. you see them being sold mm-hmm. but still if you see someone wandering around the streets uh in in the yellow shirt uh 
yeah. you still kind of think that this is this is someone on the far right. I'm hoping, and maybe this is ludicrously optimistic, but I'm hoping that the World Cup can be some kind of healing, yeah. some kind of way of, of bringing bringing the country together. There are some who they don't want to be brought together. You know, mm-hmm. the, uh, mm-hmm. the 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 weirdos and the the the, 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 the fascist fanboys. Yeah. They don't want it. Um, but I'm confident there can be some kind of, of rallying and some kind of reclamation of, of a shirt that, that belongs to everyone, whatever their politics. Absolutely. And um, if you think we've turned into a politics podcast, there is a reason for that. Politics plays a huge part in a lot of these chapters, which is what myself and Rob encourage writers. We, we wanted the historical context in all its grisly and gruesome glory basically and I think because I think it is pertinent and obviously I hope you'll agree Tim it's not the end of the world if a team loses but I do think that I do think that it's the most important of the least important things in life it's a big part of a lot you take every writer in the book you take all my friends or most of them you you know and people that cross paths with for years and years and it's something that joins us all that we can say we can say a name, we can say a footballer's name or, or a grand name and your mind is immediately transported there in a way that I think is very unique actually in, in life. And I think it should be uh, celebrated actually. And um, that's what we wanted to do with the book. We wanted to, I think 6,000 words on a 90 minute game would have been far too dry. It would never have worked. So what yeah. we wanted was just tell us about what's happening. Tell us about what happens next. Because well, like you said... With- Sorry. Without the context, it's just a kickabout. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. However good the players, it's just a kickabout. Yeah. And one of my favourite lines about football comes from the former Argentina coach, Cesar Luis Minotti, who says that a footballer is important because he lives out the dreams of many, many people. Yeah. Um, because really, at the end of the day, it's, yes, it's about the sport itself, but it's also fundamentally about who is being represented. And yeah. that, that's a huge part of, I'd imagine, all of the chapters of the book. And it's certainly a huge part of, 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 uh, of Brazil versus Uruguay. And Brazil versus Uruguay, Brazil 1950, in a way, it's a, it's, it, there's a huge 1930s fascism feel about the whole thing. Yes. And talking about hubris, and the Maracanã was hubris. Yeah. And I love the place, but it was hubris. I mean, it's got to be bigger than Hampden Park. Yeah. You know? <laughs> uh, and and uh, it is a nation trying to convince the rest of the world, but perhaps more importantly itself, itself yeah. that it is a genuine big player yeah. in accordance with its, uh, w- w- with its size. So you, you can't tell this story without the whole political dimension. No. And it was, it's brilliant that you you've covered the fact that I think very early on in your chat, you mentioned, is it even a shock at all? And you ask yourself the question yeah. and then you go on to answer it, but completely right and and like you said if you take the seven days previous and then you take everything else we know about Pelé and and you know Rivellino and all these players of course it's an upset and it's fascinating to know it's 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 a genesis story really it's an origin story of Hmm. of where it all comes from and and that's why we're very happy that we had you involved so we won't keep you any longer Tim it's been lovely having you here and uh, thank you very much And please, please, please buy a copy at halcyonpublishing.co.uk. Thank you. Bye-bye.